0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, welcome to The Mindfield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. that well, Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co host. Uh, you may be surprised to hear us if we are coming at you. Uh, at the freshly minted time of 2pm Thursdays on the radio. Uh, it might be a surprise. We used to be on Wednesdays at uh, 11.30, of course. Um, this is the new Regime. The show will go for an hour, for better or for worse. Uh, here we are. We're delighted with it. Um, and we're delighted to get stuck into today's topic. Um, Scott, I, I feel like I feel like this is one of those ones where the news hasn't happened yet, really. But that's why we're doing it because we need to talk about the concepts and the principles at play here before events happen that mean we are compelled to talk about the minutiae of the events. Is that a fair way of approaching this?
2: Look, it is, and I'm all the more grateful that you've framed it that way, because if we just get into the news of it, then it will begin to feel to some of our listeners like we are developing a bit of a fetish <laughs> that 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 the show is a little bit sort of U.S. politics heavy. Uh, and I think one of surely one of the great benefits of the end of the Trump era is that we wouldn't have to live with Trump's dictates and Trump's actions uh, for too much longer. I, I think I said in, in our first show of the year that you know this kind of round the clock media, social media feed being like, you know, communiques from a deranged minor god. Um, uh, but but I think what's interesting is certainly given the fact that Donald Trump's second impeachment trial has gotten underway this week, um, we might be done with the Trump era, but the Trump era is not done with us. I think that's probably the best way to say it. I think another way to say it is that whatever, demo, whatever crisis – democracy faced with the election of Donald Trump, it both predated that – the crisis predated that election and it will certainly linger with us beyond his departure from office. And so when you say, Willie that we're talking about some of the deeper issues, some of the principles that are involved in this, that I guess is, is – to some extent, I suppose, what I have in mind. Uh, um, there's this, well, one of my favorite films, I've got films on the mind at the moment, and I think maybe our listeners will understand a little bit later why. Um, uh, I love uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, there's something about the sort of the cheesy popcorn nature of it. Uh, there's something about the, the the doe-eyed optimism about it. To some extent, it's actually quite a Pessimistic is a very despairing film in many respects, but there are moments that I think cannot help but thrill one's heart. But I think one of the really interesting things about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is that it is absolutely not about what a good man can do once that good man is elected and takes up residence uh, in a congressional chamber. Uh, What Mr. Smith's journey to Washington does – this is uh, um, Frank Capra's film, of course – Uh, from 19, what is it, Waleed, 1949, I believe it's 1949, 1943, one of those two anyway. (laughs) Uh, um, What it actually does is it's not about what a good man can do in an otherwise corrupt place like Washington, but rather what Mr. Smith, Jefferson Smith does is he makes visible the crisis that is in Washington already. And I think there's something about Trump's presidency. He isn't the crisis, he has made the crisis visible. And what is now underway with his second impeachment trial is the extent to which that crisis is going to continue to determine both sides of politics. Maybe one side of politics slightly more than the other, but the extent to which that crisis is going to continue to determine, to affect, if you like, the future, the identities, the conduct, the moral wiring, uh, the attentiveness of these political parties. Well, where where is it that you exactly want to
1: take us so when it comes to this impeachment? What I would say, I want to say this is as as large as we can, or as yeah. largely as we can. So I would say I agree pretty much with what you've said, but it's too partial for me. Um, hmm. You're right. This isn't just about the Trump presidency. <clears throat> to me, this is about democracy. So, yeah. But at the same time, I don't think that the Trump presidency is merely some diagnostic thing and now we're discovering the extent of the democratic malaise in America and this impeachment trial will further reveal the extent of that. I think this is a real moment. This could be a hinge moment, actually, which is why I'm glad we're doing this before anything really happens. Because then we'll watch whether you know how the hinge moment materializes or doesn't. I think it's worth stopping to observe that that's what's happening here. That that's Mm. the moment here. You say perhaps one party more than another, maybe, but not really. I think. I think. I think it's important to be fairly clear-eyed on this. Whatever criticisms you want to make of the Democrats, this is a Republican crisis. In that, it's a moment when the Republican Party is being asked. Whether or not it believes in and is prepared to protect democracy. That's a far bigger question than whether or not it's prepared to try to win elections cynically or behave in a way that is perhaps less unifying than it might be. And these are all criticisms you could level at the Democrats. The, the criticism that's Level here at the Republicans or the, the moment that is staring the Republicans in the face is of a different character. I was going to say it's orders of magnitude bigger. It's not even orders of magnitude. It's conceptually different. Right? Yeah. And so, I, I mean, in an ideal world, the conversation that we're having today on this show won't be about purely America and the impeachment. It'll be about democracy and what exactly is it? What exactly are the underlying conditions of it? And I will say I begin this show – I don't know how I'll end it because, you know, you have ways of persuading me and and our guests may well say things that change my perspective on it. I don't know. I have no idea how it's going to play out. But I begin this show thinking that the real question here is what is the responsibility that the Republicans have – Towards democracy, not towards Donald Trump, not towards themselves, not towards their electoral prospects. Is it possible that they have been given one last chance to save or American democracy, or at least it's ameliorate its decline? Is it possible that they, the idea, like, are they obliged now to participate in convicting Trump for the sake of something far grander than the party and far grander than their electoral success or otherwise and far grander than Donald Trump's own legacy. Are they obliged to do that? I begin the show thinking they are. Now, like I say, I may be persuaded, but I think that's what's at stake. Hmm. And in saying that, I have to say I'm quite persuaded by historical accounts of Times that the United States, which here I think we're just treating as a democratic example, right? Mm. Times that the United States has actually come close to moments like this, right? You're right that Donald Trump isn't an aberration in the sense that there have been lots of figures like him pop up in American political history that have struck seriously anti democratic tones and that have adopted positions that are just as vilifying or racist or or whatever you want to say about Trump in the past. The difference is that the party machine at some point has tended to click into gear to keep them away from office. This is true of the Democrats. This is true of the Republicans. We've spoken about the Goldwater-Lyndon Johnson election, for example, in 1964. And the end result of that, in fact, in that case, it wasn't the Republican party machine. It was the Democrats that did it. But the, the mechanism that clicked into gear, was such an overwhelming election victory for Johnson that whatever threats to democracy may have been embodied by Goldwater failed to materialize. And there are all sorts of other examples you could pick up of candidates for the Democrats who, who never made it to become the preferred nominee, um, partly because party elders got in the way and said, no, nah, that's just not what we're going to do here. Uh, which that,
2: is, as a matter of fact, precisely what happened in 2020. When it came down to essentially Biden versus Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's right. At a crucial moment, the party elders said, no, this is our guy. He's the centrist. He's the moderate. He's the only one who will have a degree of bipartisan appeal.
1: Right. Now, their motivations for doing that, I don't know. I don't know that they were trying to heal democracy or whatever. They may have just made a calculation over who would win the election. Let's not even worry about the motivations. But you're right. That was an outcome. The the interesting thing here is the mechanism. This is something that the Republicans just never did with Trump right? There were some people who never took him seriously, thought he'll never win it. Then there was the idea of the Never Trump movement, people who were just kind of dismissing him and opposing him. Then it became clear he had such unstoppable momentum. What you saw was a party that could not find a way and perhaps was not willing to find a way to block it, to say that there are some things – Remember, we did a show, I think, around the time we asked, is the Republican Party obliged to lose mm, that's right. <laughs> right, as a result of the potential threat that the, this candidate poses to democracy? Uh, I think Timothy Lynch might have been the guest, and I think he yep. said absolutely not. Their job is to win. I don't think I agreed with that assessment then, and I don't now. But this is now the moment. In some ways, the Republicans never had the opportunity to block him because they don't have what the Democrats have in – a superdelegate system. So the Democrats, I mean, this That's gets right. very wonkish, but the Democrats have a superdelegate system, as I understand it, where they can effectively trump the will of the people who vote in the primaries. Or at least contest it to some significant degree. The Republicans but don't they, have that mechanism.
2: That's that, that that's right. But Democrats also have proportional primary voting. So it's not you win the majority of the votes in a state and you get all of those delegates. Uh, with the Republican Party, it's winner takes all for each primary state. With the with, with the Democrats, the delegates are distributed proportionally right. according to the number. So so that that means that you end up getting, if you like, a blowout contests or blowout primary yeah. contests, whereas they are much historically much, much tighter
1: for the and, and it also means that if we assume there's a group of party elders who meet in rooms with plush carpets and leather couches and smoke cigars. Cigars. And then, cigars. <laughs> and then decide who's going to be the next candidate, um, they don't have any, really any influence in the Republican Party. Which sounds very democratic and is democratic. But what it removes is some kind of filter that mm. stops sort of a kind of populism, not that populism itself is necessarily a problem, but that becomes threatening to the very enterprise or endeavour of democracy, which is now where the Republican Party's ended up. So they don't have those mechanisms. They do now. This, it seems to me, is the moment where they have that mechanism. They have that lever to pull. And I've never been a fan of impeaching Trump. We've done shows on that in the past, and I've always thought that was a bad move and that it would be a bad way for his presidency to end. But now his presidency having ended... I think there is something in it for a statement to be made, a clear line to be drawn by the Republican Party, based even just on the narrow idea of the rejection of democracy, which I think Trump's response to the election made plain. Mm. And and I feel like they have to make that call because if they don't, the threat is not to the Republican Party or even to America, although it is to America – It's, I think, to the very notion of what the fundamental prerequisites are for democracy operating. Am I putting this too grandly? No, no. I think you're putting it exactly right. Uh, If anything, uh, I
2: think the issue or the problem, the underlying question here is even deeper than this. It may even be grander than what you're laying out. Can I just get a little bit of clarity from you though, Willie, before we go much further? I mean the issue that is of course front of mind and the issue that made many Republican leaders rethink their allegiance and even publicly take quite strident positions against – Trump following the loss of the election in November last year was of course the siege or the let, – let, let's call it – I know you don't quite agree with this description but say the, the anti-democratic mob violence uh, on the Capitol building on the 6th of January and there was something so shocking about that and there was something so overt and in some respects unthinking and almost – There was something too crude about the role that Donald Trump played in both glorifying and whether or not one agrees with his description inciting that particular form of violence. But you're saying that it's the very way in which Trump poured both scorn and sowed doubt about the legitimacy of the electoral process in the lead up to the election and the way that he then cast doubt on it afterwards. You're saying that that is – an offence that, Im- that ought to be impeachable enough for the Republicans to decide to take action. And
1: it's him. bigger than the Republican Party and bigger than the yes. elections and bigger than your own personal politics. So if you feel like you're a conservative and you're really are petrified as to what a Democrat presidency and Congress will bring, you're entitled to that view. I respect that. This is bigger than that, though, because this, I feel, could echo for, yeah. for generations, right? Um, you know, I, I will confess... I've been influenced in this, in reading a book that I think I like more than you, which is a book called How Democracies Die by Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Levitsky. And they're interesting because they're scholars of politics um, that have a a spread of expertise. So they don't just talk about America and they don't just talk about Nazis. (laughs) They talk about a lot of Latin American experience (laughs) as well. And it's watching the way that they catalogue the examples across the world of how countries flip from democracies to not democracies that has sharpened my mind on this, I think. It's sharpened my focus. Yeah, They were writing at the end of Trump's first year. So they're not, you know, in the middle of a, they're not coming at this point when it's all exploded. And they were identifying these things that I think were very important for us to reflect on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and look, they – I mean one of the reasons I don't care for the book particularly much, uh, I don't care for either theoretical frame. I don't – I I think it was too much part of that glut of books that appeared at the end of Donald Trump's first year um, and didn't diagnose properly, I think, uh, the real underlying problem. And it was a little bit too slipshod – uh, and loose and promiscuous with its use
1: of the term populism.
2: All of these things are are. are I think are all those are fair criticisms,
1: actually. For another day. Yeah, all those I think are fair criticisms, but I think none of them address the central insight they have. No, true. So the mechanisms so, they identify for when democracies fall over and cease to be democracy, I think are chastening.
2: Okay. Yeah. Um, here's where I think you might not be stating this as big, as, uh, as gravely as you ought to. Um, To my mind, uh, one of the issues – and this is why I don't think framing the question in terms of do Republicans have an obligation to convict, to impeach Trump here any more than the conversation of do Republicans have an obligation to lose an election when they have a particularly noxious Mm -hmm. candidate. I don't think either of those ways of framing the question quite get – to the real underlying malaise. It is worth pointing out, just by the way, Willid, that if you think about the two candidates for the presidential for the 2016 presidential election uh, on the Republican side, uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, Trump himself was in fact the moderate candidate. That's one of the interesting Mm. things to take note of,
1: ideologically speaking. Well, sort of. It depends what you mean by that. Yeah.
2: Well, well, yes. I I mean, formally, formally, he's the extreme candidate. But in terms of being a kind of business pragmatist who can probably talk language that most Republicans can resonate with, who's probably not going to be an extremist when it comes to either shrinking government or banning abortion, Mm. then Trump is your moderate. Uh, So it, it is interesting that there was a kind of reversion. To the moderate mean in 2016, I think there was also way too much faith that Trump could effectively be a, be a front man and that the rough edges could be sanded off. Um, but I think what, what we're missing here is that the reason that Trump, I believe, will not be convicted, that he will not be impeached, the reason that I don't think the Republican Party can get to that point – Quite apart from the sheer electoral logic that if they did that, they would be consigning themselves to the electoral wilderness for at least the next two terms, if not more than that. that They would more than likely uh, divide the Republican Party, that you would have effectively – Trump's quote-unquote base, which by any account is somewhere between seventy-six and eighty-five percent. wasn't there a Wall Street Journal
1: article suggesting he might start a thing called the Patriot Party? And exactly. That. Yeah. So, although so if he's all impeached, that, he couldn't become president.
2: No, that's exactly right. But here's here it seems to me is the big issue. This is the big, big, big question. For a good deal of the Republican Party. Those people who still think of themselves as being republicans and have especially identified themselves, if you like, with Trump's brand of fighting republicanism. Mm. It's not democracy that really needs to be preserved. It's not democracy that's under threat. What we've been witnessing I think for I don't believe the last four years, I think much longer than that is the emergence of what can only be described as a, as a kind of existential politics. So our political opponents are not merely our political opponents. They represent imminent threats – to an entire way of life. And if you want to assign that threat to a conspiracy, to some kind of strange mixture of immigrants and a kind of anti-Semitic cabal or a kind of Jewish cabal that's behind the entire thing that anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant lenses can see clearly, however you want to frame it, if the other side wins, our entire way of life gets lost. And when the stakes are that grave... When the fate of an entire understanding of nationhood hangs in the balance, then to be perfectly frank, democratic conventions, the way that things normally are, peaceful transfers of power, an orderly running, an orderly transition from one party to the next, all of these things become kind of frivolous. These become ornaments that pale in comparison to the real issue, which is a kind of civilizational threat. And it seems to me that the reason that Trump will not be convicted and that Trumpism cannot be eradicated for the foreseeable future from the Republican Party, is that the Republicans, and I would say to some extent, maybe not to the same degree, but to a degree that's worrying enough to be I think be morally concerning, the Republicans have have bought into a form of existential politics where what matters is the protection of an entire way of life. And if that way of life then gets accompanied by something called, quote-unquote, democracy, then well and good. But what really matters, what really matters is the protection uh, of that way of life. And that's where Trump's genius, I think, in 2016 was to recognize that the real axis in American politics isn't left-right. It's not Republican-Democrat. It's strong versus weak. And the Republicans have bought into
1: Strength, And yeah. I think that's that. where the real threat. And that buttresses uh, the point I'm making, that democracy only works when both sides accept each other's legitimacy. That's right. And it proceeds that way. What's at stake here, I think, is that kind of politics. And you're right. It might be the wilderness for the Republicans for a long time. I'm just asking the question, and at this point I resolve it in the affirmative, that they need to, well, as to whether or not they need to take that hit because it's that pivotal a moment. It's the only way that democratic culture can be salvaged, or at least begun to be salvaged in the situation America is now facing. Anyway, we'll see if I change my mind. This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now. Uh, the new time for the show on the radio is 2 p.m. Thursday, by the way. Uh, of course, the 10 a.m. Sunday show still remains. But you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app, or you can subscribe to it as The Mindfield, wherever you subscribe to your podcast of choice. All right, Scott, let's do this. Yes. Well,
2: our guest, we've got him back on the show. Before we went to air, I, I made the Basil Faulty remark from Faulty Towers that uh, he seems to be one of our satisfied guests. And so instead of having him stuffed, we've actually brought him back <laughs> on the show. Yasha Monk is Associate Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of what I think is one of the best books on the challenges the threats the dangers of the trump era called the people versus democracy why our freedom is in danger and how to save it he's the host of the good fight podcast and he's the founder of persuasion yasha thank you so much for coming back on the minefield
0: of course it's my pleasure um as i was saying uh, before the show uh, i hope that most of your guests are a little bit more satisfied than those who stay with puzzle 40
2: <laughs> so, so look, let, let's just start off with uh, Persuasion. This is a new thing for you that uh, you weren't involved with the last time we had you on.
0: Uh, yeah. So it's a, a magazine and a community that's uh, for those who want to fight for the values of a free society. I think uh, as you were talking about, democracy is under threat. I also think the basic principles of philosophical liberalism, including free speech, are under threat from all kinds of quarters at the moment. And so this is uh, a publication in which we fight for those values, um, have really exciting events, uh, which may be late enough at night, but they're early enough in uh, Australia for people to attend them uh, with great authors and so on. So I invite all of your listeners to check it out at www.persuasion.community.
2: So, Yasha, l- let, me, let me put a scenario to you and then you can take this wherever you want. I, I, I have a hunch – that both Democrats and Republicans, or let's refer to them because I do think this is an international phenomenon, the left and the right both believe that the progressive side of politics is on, quote-unquote, the right side of history, that the future belongs to the progressives. The progressives are so convinced of that that they believe that a complex mix of migration, demographic change, economic – say the return of something like a kind of uh, um, uh, revamped, revitalized welfare state and say more general forms of redistribution uh, will more or less guarantee that what has gone by the name of conservatives will pass out of existence, that there's something like the providential logic of history, capital H, that's on their side. The right conservatives – are more or less convinced of exactly the same thing. But what that's then done is instead of falling back on some kind of providential logic of history, that's then made them uh, hunker down, if I can use that horrible southern phrase, uh, hunker down into a defensive or a fighting posture uh, so that they're trying to hold back as long as humanly possible the dying of the light. And that's why the attraction of fighting – conservative candidates who will stand up for a way of life who will fight back against these seemingly inexorable trends in other words that this is these are two sides of something like existential politics and when politics becomes existential when it becomes a fight for survival on one side or another then the necessary conditions for democracy cannot help but suffer how does that strike you as a way of characterizing our moment
0: well you know what why don't we talk about the united states first and then think about how it applies in other countries because i think the case for the broad vision you painted there is uh, more convincing to me in the united states than it is in other places um i do think that in america for the last 10 or 20 years politics has been deeply influenced by what I call the most dangerous idea in American politics. And that is one of the few, there's many bad ideas, by the way, in American politics that the left believe. There's a lot of bad ideas that the right believe. There's very few bad ideas that both the left and the right believe. And this is uh, perhaps the most consequential one. It's the idea of the rising demographic majority for Democrats. The idea that because Democrats tend to do better among uh, non-white voters, among younger voters among voters in big cities, which are growing, um, you know, they will just naturally have this inbuilt majority fall into their lap uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years from now. That as the share of white voters declines, as young people uh, become older, old people die out, uh, teenagers get to vote, all of the kind of trends favor their victory. And this is something the left believes, which means that it becomes less interested in persuading voters, less interested in trying to win over swing voters because it thinks all we need to do is to mobilize our base, and that'll be enough and It's been deeply influential on especially the the far right, deeply influential among classical conservatives who made the case in 2016 for why they should get on board with Donald Trump, because as Michael Anton wrote in the run-up to that election, we're facing the kind of scenario that the passengers of Flight 93 did on 9-11, which is to say we know our plane has been hijacked. We know that the pilot is going to fly it into some terrible target. We have to try and storm the cockpit because that's our best chance for survival which is to say we got to stop the direction that this is heading right now because otherwise there's going to be so many voters who are hostile to us that it's too late in any case and so who knows whether donald trump can land the plane you know who knows whether we're going to be able to stop it but we've got to try right um so this i think is a very very entrenched narrative on both the left and the right and i think it's a wrong narrative um, when you actually look carefully at the empirical evidence There's simply very little reason to think that uh, both sides of the political spectrum are right in the projections for America's future.
1: I'm going to need you to expand on that, because Mm. if it's such a shared assumption, then I think if you want to debunk it, you've got to do it.
0: Look, um, the first point is that um, the assumption here is that the white vote, and especially the white working class vote, is small and rapidly declining and that Democrats don't particularly rely on it. Um, The problem with this is that that's wrong, that actually um, uh, we will for a long time to come uh, have uh, about half of the vote come uh, from white voters, Um, uh, a huge portion of the vote come from white working class voters. And even though Republicans do better among the demographic than Democrats, um, because it's such a huge group, a huge share of the Democratic vote does come from this demographic. And so, if you give up on this vote, you can rack up votes among Latinos, you can rack up votes among African Americans, and still lose. According to the projections of Rui Teixeira, who ironically was the first person to come up with the idea of a rising demographic majority, Democrats will still need to have a majority of the vote be from white voters to have a realistic chance of winning the presidential elections 15, 20 years from now. So that's the first big uh, problem in this theory. The second big problem in this theory is that it is very naive to project the current vote patterns of Asian-Americans or of Latinos, um, think they're all not white. This means we're all going to vote on the, quote unquote, voter of color or people of color side. we are all going to be against the Democrats. We've seen the vote in these groups very rapidly across time, Hispanics and Asian-Americans both used to be quite sympathetic to the Republican Party. Right now, they're much more strongly in favor of the Democratic Party. But that might uh, change again in 5 or 10 or 20 years. In fact, in the 2020 election, Democrats made significant gains among white voters, especially college-educated white voters, and they lost voters in virtually every other demographic. They lost Asian-American voters, they lost Muslim-American voters, And they strongly lost Hispanic American voters compared to 2016. They still won majorities in those slices of electorate, but they did far less well than four years ago. So we've actually seen a depolarization of the American electorate by religion and ethnicity over the last four years, which goes exactly counter to these assumptions.
1: Yeah, and Florida was the um, poster chart for that, wasn't it? I mean, watching the Les Hino vote completely whack Biden as – Um, Parts of that Latino vote which were, I think, far more sensitive to allegations of socialism than they were to allegations of racism broke. There's two
0: interesting things going on. So the first is that when you look at the Latino vote in Miami, there's a lot of uh, Cuban-Americans, a lot of Venezuelan-Americans, people from countries where they've really had uh, very personal experiences with what happens when socialism goes wrong. And so they you know, were very sensitive to some of the rising stars in the Democratic Party talking about socialism in a positive way. Um, and that was one of the reasons uh, why uh, Biden, in a very successful year, um, uh, did not manage to win Florida. Um, I think even more interestingly are some counties in the southwest of Texas. Uh, these are Mexican-Americans but aren't particularly allergic to mentions of socialism. Um, they have been in the country, on average, Uh, for a longer period of time than the Cuban Americans and the Venezuelan Americans in Florida, and yet they too swung to uh, Trump in uh, even greater numbers. And that, I think, is more similar to what happened with Irish Americans and Italian Americans 50 or 40 years ago, which had once been very democratic, but as they came to be in the country for a longer time, do a little bit better economically, feel more established in the country, Um, their voting patterns uh, became much more similar to that of other demographic groups. So you have a sort of specific socialism problem in Florida, but you also have a wider phenomenon of uh, Latinos saying, we don't define as people of color, we define as Americans. Um, Perhaps we like uh, Donald Trump's sort of brash leadership style. Um, He is in some ways, as people have pointed out, Uh, quite similar to Latin American populists, quite similar, by the way, to certain dictators in Africa. And so why shouldn't we vote for him?
1: Mm. So this is all extremely valuable nuance and context around that central assumption that you seem, I assume you're arguing, is a major problem in American politics. But given it's shared and given that it was in many ways weaponized by Donald Trump's campaigning and that when it fell short – uh, ultimately, in the 2020 election, the response to that was a similar response he had given before 2016, uh, really until he won, which was that the whole system is broken, uh, and this was stolen, and that our opponents are illegitimate, and so on and so forth. That this this is the basis for the existential politics that Scott's talking about in the United States if that's the background, if that's the context, if that's the terrain on which this impeachment is happening, what do you think is the Republican responsibility, not to Republicanism or to the Republican Party, but to democracy?
0: Well, I mean, I would would distinguish between a few things. The first is that uh, clearly every citizen's first responsibility should be to preserving our democratic institutions. Um, Not necessarily because we should think that procedure is more important than substance or, um, you know, because they should care more about the niceties of the United States Constitution than they should about, you know, causes that they feel are incredibly important in a substantive manner. Um, But because we should all recognize, as people who have passionate political beliefs, that the only way we can fight for them in a fair way and the only way we can do what we can to convert these beliefs into reality without risking enormous conflict or even civil war is to have a set of mechanisms that determine who wins, that allow me to tolerate you ruling if you win the election, because I know that four years from now, I will have a chance to rule in your stead. And so, you know, Republican congressmen and senators and senators as United States citizens should have a huge responsibility to protect democracy. Uh, I think that Donald Trump was a danger to American democracy, and that Republicans have failed miserably in standing up to that danger over the last four years. Now, you know, there's a different question as to whether they have uh, a moral responsibility uh, to vote to condemn Donald Trump, and indeed, uh, whether or not it is uh, strategically wise or smart to impeach Donald Trump at this point if you care about the future of American democracy. And on that, my feelings are much more torn. Mm. Um, I think that Donald Trump has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. I think it's perfectly appropriate to um, convict him. Uh, If I was a senator uh, tasked with voting on the impeachment articles, I would vote in the affirmative because I do think that he – Um, uh, is guilty of the charges that are being laid before him. At the same time, as somebody who studies populism around the world, uh, I know one thing, which is that by far and away, the best manner of containing the threat of authoritarian populists is to defeat them at the ballot box in free and fair elections.
1: Which has been done, by the way.
0: Exactly. That succeeds very, very rarely. There are few cases in which people have managed to displace an authoritarian populist who was already in power by turning up
1: and voting him out of office. And Americans managed to do that. Only, two months. Ago. Only sort of though. This is the this is where I think <laughs> it gets to the the heart of it. Right? They did, except that a huge chunk of the populists don't believe they did, and so you have, now have a democratic crisis in the sense. That a democratic verdict has been handed down that is not accepted as such and not by a small number. I think the last poll I saw was something like 70, 80% of of self-identified Republicans believe that the election was stolen. That's a direct Mm -hmm. result of the undermining of the democratic process and perhaps even the entire idea now. Of democracy in america so so that's the yes and there's there's, there's no
0: precedent for the extent to which donald trump has doubted the outcome of the election and the way in which he has tried to impede the peaceful transfer of power and um you know the one thing that i'm happy about in respect to that is that it will cement his role in history um i always had this fear that you know a teacher trying to explain 50 or 100 years from now why Donald Trump was so bad would struggle, because the way in which he attacked democracy was actually complicated. You have to know a lot about the Constitution and a lot about laws to see just how bad the things he was doing were. Um, And so how do you explain that to a 10-year-old, you know, even 20 years from now? And then, you know, Donald Trump might have been remembered as this Sort of fun, interesting, larger-than-life figure. You know, we remember Teddy Roosevelt for hunting bears, and you know, perhaps we would have remembered Donald Trump as just a sort of, u American character who's sort of entertaining and funny. Um, I think the assault on the capital, um, the capital has ensured that, that won't be the case. Um, those pictures will be in the history books, and it will be easy to explain to a ten-year-old: he lost; he was a sore loser; he could not accept the outcome of the election; he enticed people. Uh, exhorted people to go to the Capitol, and they sacked the Senate. Here are the pictures from that day. That's something that will live on in history, and, 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 and I think it will deservedly make him be remembered as uh, one of the most anti-democratic presidents in American history. Now, having said all of that, the outcome that a part of the American population doesn't believe that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of a country is not all that new. There's a lot of Democrats who felt that way about George W. Bush in 2000 because of the uh, debacle in the elections in Florida. But, but
1: that can't be compared, uh, to Yasha. It's so there's, different. There's,
0: there's, well. I, I'm not saying that the actions. I mean, Al Gore uh, famously conceded graciously. Um, I'm not saying I'm not comparing Al Gore to, to to Donald Trump. I'm not comparing how appropriate it was to to doubt the election then to how appropriate it is now. But for the last four American presidential elections. George W. Bush because of Florida in 2000, um, Barack Obama because of his species conspiracy theories that he was actually born in Kenya, Donald Trump because of alleged Russian interference, and now uh, the transition of power uh, that on the basis of complete lies supposedly had been stolen by Donald Trump. There has always been a significant portion of the American population that believed that the president shouldn't be the president. And I think it's just worth keeping in mind that that's been the case for 20 years. It's led to all kinds of problems in the system, but we've been able to survive it and we'll be able to survive a bunch of people thinking that Joe Biden shouldn't actually be the legitimate president for the next four years.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Our guest today is Yasha Monk, his Associate Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at John Hopkins University, also host of the Good Fight podcast. Today he's on our podcast slash radio show. I've really dominated. I've hogged it with this. No, so I mean, no. It's. I've got a lot more to say, but I. I know
2: you do. Yep. I'll be very, very brief. I <laughs> no, don't. Um. No. I mean, Yasha, this is. This is all extremely valuable, and I realize that it seems that what we've witnessed in the transition from 2020 to 2021, in many respects, this is part of a continuum that we've been seeing. Uh, this kind of progressive doubting of the legitimacy of a particular political outcome. I. I. I think I'm probably more with you about the effect that 2000. Uh, that the 2000 election uh, um, uh, result of the result of the Supreme Court decision in favor of stopping the counting or stopping the recounting of further votes. I do think that there's a very interesting and very important precedent there for where we are now. What strikes me, however, just in terms of this continuity, I recently went back and reread Richard Hofstadter's uh, the Paranoid Style in American Politics, and then a series of follow-up essays that he wrote on what he calls pseudoconservatism and the Goldwater phenomenon all of which is drenched in apocalyptic rhetoric, that that this moment is a kind of precipice, that we are locked in a battle, a fight between absolute good and absolute evil. Goldwater himself, of course, indulged in 1964 in a great deal of this rhetoric and then, of course, simply concedes to Lyndon Johnson. What strikes me is that in many respects the similarity, the continuity of that kind of apocalyptic existential political language right up to our time, it almost feels as though, well, at least Donald Trump was simply more honest in the way that he responded to the stakes that he said were involved in this particular vote so or the outcome of the 2020 election, which I guess leads me to the question, isn't the real problem here the fighting Stance itself, the adoption of apocalyptic or existential politics, shouldn't we, if we really care about the preservation of what George Kateb calls the health of democratic culture as a whole, shouldn't we be putting far more uh, attentiveness, far more consideration into the civic, the moral uh, transitions from one regime to another and not just the procedural transition? In other words, shouldn't we be spending far more attention, if you like, I don't know if praising is the right word, but but honoring that administration that has passed so that those who voted so strenuously, so that they continue to belong to the political community in the movement to the next administration?
0: Well, um, I'm not sure of that. I mean, there's a part of the motivation behind the question that I agree with and and, and, and think is very perceptive, but, but, but there's a way of drawing the consequences from it where I get off board. Um, you know, ideally, you have a political system in which you have real mutual toleration in which you say, as John McCain did in 2008, I may not agree with my opponent, but they are legitimate. Um, so... Uh, you know, in one of the last uh, days of this campaign, a woman at a town hall asked Senator McCain, um, you know, I'm really scared of what will happen if Barack Obama wins this election. You know, I think he's terrible. I think he hates America. You know, this country is in exactly these apocalyptic turns that Hofstetter described. She said this country is going to go to the dogs if 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 Obama wins. And McCain, to his great credit, responded by saying, look, I think there's an important election. I think there's a million reasons to vote for me rather than Obama. But he's he's a decent and honorable man, and you don't have to be afraid if he wins the election. So ideally, we would be in a political system in in a moment when we can have deep disagreements, but also mutual respect of that sort. Now the question becomes, what do you do if a politician is not worthy of that respect because he does, in fact, attack the Constitution if he does not accept a peaceful transfer of power, if he says without any evidence that the election was stolen. I think to say, well, but we should have this mutual respect, so let's just pretend that Donald Trump was an upstanding uh, American um, and there was nothing wrong with him, uh, uh, that seems wrong to me. You have to call a spade a spade. And you have to be honest about the fact that Donald Trump attacked American institutions in ways that we should all be horrified by. What's important, though, is that you cannot delegitimize half the United States population. You cannot start to say, if somebody voted for Donald Trump, there must be a bad person. You cannot say, I have given up on trying to persuade anybody on the other side, because we know that they are all bigots and racists and we don't even want the vote. Um, You know, we're just going to Uh, uh, you know, corral our own vote and hope that they all die out. And and what I do worry about is that there are um, many journalists um, and a few politicians who have started to speak like that. There was quite an entertaining and laughable op-ed in the Los Angeles Times just a couple of days ago uh, where, uh, uh, you know, a columnist had gotten some kind of... uh, um, Getaway and in, 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 in you know winter getaway in the countryside and her neighbours had uh, very kindly cleared her um, uh, you know her, her pathway from snow that had been a heavy snowfall um, and uh, and she was agonising about whether she could forgive them because they had a small Trump flag outside of a house and she concluded with a bunch of comparisons to Nazis and others. About uh, you know the fact that it wasn't for her to forgive the great injustice they had inflicted on the country, um, and you know I think uh, uh, we should be honest about how we feel about Donald Trump. Um, we should not pretend that his administration was decent when it was actually an assault on American institutions. Um, but if you want to live in a democracy, you cannot write off fifty percent of the population as unredeemable bigots whom you'll never forgive for what they did. Um, Because then you yourself are starting to make the case against democracy. If yeah, you're saying that yeah. half of the population is illegitimate, then you no longer believe in democracy. And I do believe in democracy. I think Americans made a huge mistake in 2016. And they realized that and they voted Donald Trump out in free and fair elections. And that is an amazing achievement.
1: But that is one of the effects that there's sort of – um, uh, what do I say – these candidates or even leaders that undermine democracy have is they, dra- they have a gravitational effect on the other side and you end up in a kind of democratic death spiral as a result of that because how do I honour in democratic terms someone who refuses to reciprocate that honour um, or who doesn't even rise to the level of being honoured in that way and then that's why you get this death dance. But that, I think that's the reason. I agree with everything you just said there, Yasha, but I think that's the reason that I do think this falls to the Republicans and I do think it falls to them to make this statement. I've been thinking about the comments you made about how every election over the past 20 years has been contested in this way. And I kind of feel like I have two responses that in a way buttress my conclusion. One is, A, I, I still think they are re- totally different. Um, they're of a totally different nature. It seems to me the only way that you can understand the challenge to Biden's legitimacy is to bring the whole democratic system as it currently exists, into disrepute. It's, it's very different from a 2000 thing which comes down to one state and a Supreme Court and so on. I get the idea, I get there's overlaps, but it seems like it's conceptually different to be saying the whole thing is broken. It, it's like it's saying it cannot deliver a real result anymore, which is a huge statement. But even if I'm wrong about that, if we're going to say that the buildup over 20 years has been there, well, that only underscores to me the seriousness of it, of this moment that this isn't a moment that's just like other moments. This is the result of a longstanding, decades-long trend in American politics that is built to this point. And at some point, the boil has to be lanced. And if we are to avoid the existential nature of politics where the other side becomes illegitimate and the followers or the voters on the other side are illegitimate, then the only people, it seems, that can solve this are the Republicans. What am I missing by saying that?
0: So first of all, you know, I... My point is not that the nature of the claims about 2000 are the same as the nature of the claims about 2020. It is just to say that, you know, not very much follows from the fact that a portion of the United States population does not believe Joe Biden to be the legitimate president. Um, I think that, you know, uh, all of the institutions are going to listen to what Joe Biden uh, says for the next four years. There's no risk of a rebellion from the United States Army. There's no risk of any uh, significant bureaucrat saying i'm ignoring i 'm ignoring your executive orders or i 'm ignoring my boss who's telling me what to do um it clearly indicates the brokenness of america it clearly indicates the the loss of legitimacy for American political institutions and it clearly is a result of utterly unacceptable behavior by donald trump um but but i 'm just making a more limited claim um that 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 we've been, that we 've had a similar amount of uh, loss of legitimacy before, and it didn't, in fact, stop the functioning of the institutions, which I think is important. Now, um, you know, when it comes to uh, your question about the Republicans, um, look, I would love for them to uh, finally have the courage to say publicly what so many of them say privately about Donald Trump. I would love for them to finally break the spell and tell everybody what they really Think of him. Um, They're not going to. So I don't know that it's very wise or smart to put them in a position where they have yet another opportunity to fail to do so. Um, I don't know whether whether if I was a democratic strategist, I would have um, delivered the almost certain second victory for Donald Trump in front of the Senate. So he can once again say that he was exonerated. But that's a kind of minor question. I don't think it'll make a huge difference either way. And the second impeachment trial, honestly is being ignored by a lot of Americans in the way that the first one was not. Um, The important question is, what's the future of the Republican Party? Um, And here, uh, you know, it seems quite likely that a Trumpist political candidate will win the primaries in 2024. Uh, At this point, Donald Trump remains very popular in the party. And so there's a very real risk that we will once again have a matchup between a candidate on the democratic side who we may like or dislike, but who clearly respects basic uh, rules and norms of American democracy, and a candidate on the other side um, who will attack those rules and norms um, and who may do so in a smarter, more disciplined, more appealing way than Donald Trump did. And that is a huge concern. So for me, the big question is, how do we ensure that Uh, uh, a decent Republican will win the 2024 presidential primaries, one of whom I might disagree on many substantive issues, but who is committed to the basic institutions of the country, one who doesn't need to make us scared of the survival of our democratic institutions. Now, that may be somebody who is principled and who votes to impeach Donald Trump and who says that Trump is the danger he truly is. I think it's more likely to be a politician who is neither a fan of Donald Trump nor an overt opponent of him. Somebody who says, look, let's forget about Trump. That's in the past. Let's not relitigate this. I'm going to tell you where we should take the country in the future. Um, And uh, that's not going to give us the moral satisfaction that I would like. It might make us think more poorly of that political candidate. But if that's the person who's able to rescue the Republican Party from uh, the clutches of Donald Trump, then I I probably won't vote for them, but I'll be uh, happy for that to happen.
1: I think we agree. We disagree, I think, on the relevance of the role of the impeachment in that process. And I suppose history will show us that you're probably right, Yasha. which is why we got you on the show as a guest. Thank you very much for helping us out today. Thank you so much. Yasha Munk, Associate Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at John Hopkins University, host of the Good Fight podcast and also the founder of a new publication called Persuasion, which sums up what we try to do, I think, here on the show. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.